Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 30th of November 2020 and this is episode 186. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Peter Anderson about the role of Folkestone Harbour in the Great War. Peter spoke to me from his home in Folkestone, Kent. Hi Peter, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? It kind of grew on me because my father was a career soldier and he was in the army for over 35 years. I grew up in or around army bases, military cemeteries. I knew veterans from the First World War. So the, the, the interest grew over time. I've always had extremely itchy feet and will travel at the drop of a pin. So I spent the first 50 years of my life traveling around the world. And it was not until I, my wife and I decided that we needed to settle down and stay somewhere. So we moved to Folkestone in England and this is where we now live. We enjoy joy we live in here. Folkestone itself is on the southeast coast of England. It's a seaside resort. There was um, a society here which was involved in the Great War Centenary. I had a look at their work, and they worked very hard, and they did many good things. But I felt that the premise that they were working under was not correct. So that's how I started researching this particular project. I thought it would take a year or two, but for various reasons, some minor, some major, it's taken a lot longer than I thought. But I'm still working on it. And it's to do with the embarkations from Folkestone in the First World War. So why do you think uh, the story of Folkestone and the embarkations from the port during the First World War is an important story? Folkestone was a major port of embarkations in the First World War. And it became the major leave port. So there, there was always a sort of flow of soldiers and others, but mainly soldiers, back and forth across the channel as a response to the situation as it was unfolding over a period of time in France and Flanders. And um, the, the, the society that was here insisted that it was the major port of embarkation. Some of them had told me it was the only port of embarkation, and it obviously wasn't. Uh, it was an extremely important one. There's uh, a lot of First World War influences that you can still see around the town. And also it's where I live. I like writing about the place I live in. So that's why it's important. What was Folkestone like prior to the outbreak of the First World War? What was, what was Edwardian Folkestone like in its sort of character and who sort of went there? Folkestone was one of the leading Edwardian resorts. There's a, a sector of town which is still very wealthy today where the rich and powerful came. And it was a second town that the ordinary people were not allowed in. It was just for them. So it was a very busy port. And also, with the advent of the train, people could take the train from London down to here, and they could take the packet boats across to France. It was a very cheap form of travel. For the first time, that the railways opened up the coastal resorts, and Folkestone was one of these. It just grew over time. 
we had people like Kitchener had a house near here. Royalty stayed here. It was the place to go. <laughs> and it still is a place where, where the beautiful people live today. <laughs> Some of them, yes, yeah. It's a lovely little town, actually. It's uh, much maligned. The harbour area is really nice. The harbour arm is a very nice place to go to have a, a meal or, or a beer. And it's got plenty of beach space. On a day like today, which is sunshine and 25 degrees, you couldn't beat it. It's a wonderful place. And I have to tell our listeners that we're recording this in uh, mid mid to late May 2020. And I think this might go out somewhat in the autumn, so the weather may not be as good. But could you tell us actually, where is Folkestone? Folkestone is in the southeast of England. It's 60 odd miles from London, more or less due south from, from London. It's not far from Dover, not that far from France. We can get to London in an hour on the train. We can get to Paris in about two and a half hours by the train, right on the channel on the southeast coast in Kent. So you've talked to, you've already mentioned that it was, um, that Folkestone was a major uh, embarkation point for British and uh, Commonwealth soldiers. Why was it so important during the war? And, and why did they go from Folkestone and maybe not from Dover or Southampton? Troops embarked from quite a few ports, from Tilbury, they some embarked from Dover, some embarked from Southampton. One of the reasons why Folkestone grew in importance and became a port of embarkation is its closeness to Dover and its closeness, its accessibility to London and the training area at Shawncliffe Camp, which is right next door to Folkestone. One of the, 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 the features was that soldiers would go from Folkestone over to France and wounded soldiers would come back far Dover because you didn't want soldiers going to war seeing the number of wounded coming back. You wanted to keep them apart. It was also Roy, which was the feeder port from Folkestone. It's very close to Flanders, the Belgian area of the war. Southampton tended to take heavier equipment and transport and other things along with other ports. And they went to Le Havre, which was one of the sort of ports of entry into France itself. So that there was a sort of distinction between Southampton and Folkestone. Southampton is the port where the British Expeditionary Force first left from in 1914. Folkestone only became a port of embarkation in 1915, at the end of March 1915. And it continued as a port of embarkation right up until 1919. Because the, uh, the, the way that the harbour is, the harbour sits below a cliff. You go downhill from the Isle the harbour. It was comparatively easy to get to. Uh, there was already boats that sailed from here to Boulogne. It just ticked all the boxes. This uh, society I was talking about, they, um, they decided to commemorate Folkestone in the First World War, and they did a really good job. But one of the things they, they said, they said a few things which just didn't make sense. And they've kind of been accepted into the way other people view the war. For example, they said that uh, in the harbour that there was a, a harbour mole cafe where soldiers in uniform would get uh, a free cup of tea or a mug of tea and a free cake. And they thought right on the harbour mole, it's sort of come down as a result of the centenary in that as soldiers would go down to the harbour, they would march down to the harbour, they would go in, have a cup of tea, and embark and sail across the wall. And while they were at the harbour, they would sign 
the visitor's book in the cafe. The visitor's book is um, a remarkable set of books. There's eight volumes. If anybody gets a chance to travel down to Folkestone and see them, do so. It's a remarkable document, set of documents. But the idea that it was, they are signed by soldiers going to France, to me, is flawed. That was not what was happening. Um, the idea that soldiers marched down from the, the rest camp on the Lees down to the harbour to embark is also flawed. Hence my research. Tell me what the harbour mole is. The harbour mole is, is an arm of the harbour. It's like a, a sort of concrete pier or jetty sticks out in the sea. Before we go any further, could you tell us a bit about this embarkation book? Right, they're um, hard, hardbound books. There's roughly 12 signatures on a page. And the estimate is there's about 42,000 signatures in total. Next to the signature, the people often wrote their units, you know, which regiment or battalion they were in, or odd little comments. So it, it is a truly fascinating thing. And there, there's eight volumes altogether. What I think was happening, if you can imagine that the harbour mole on one side, there's offices and sort of different things, and the Harbour Mall Cafe. Thank Next you. to the, the, the road office, there's a, a platform. Then there's the railway track. Then there's the quayside. And then there's the ship. What I think was happening was that the boats would return from France, and soldiers, people who had to come back for various reasons, would disembark from the boat. They would either walk up through town, or they would stop at the Harbour Harbour Mall Cafe for tea and whatever, and they would sign the the visitor's book and uh, wait for a train. The reason that I think that that is the way it happens is because we know there's from war diaries, personal memoirs, and things like this, that there was very little time between a train arriving at Folkestone Harbour and the troops disembark, detraining and embarking on the boat. One battalion managed it in 10 minutes. So it was a very, very slick operation. There just was not the time to get off the train, go and have a cup of tea, walk around the train and go on the boat. It just wasn't, it wasn't physically possible. And also the Harbour Mole Cafe was only open during the daytime. And a lot of uh, troop ships sailed at night. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that they, they would pop down to the harbour a couple of hours early to sign in the, in the Harbour Mole Cafe. It, it doesn't make sense. So what you're saying is, is that, the, that the people who signed the book were very much coming home and they were standing around the station waiting for, a, for their train back to London rather than soldiers leaving and signing the book, going to France. Yeah, yeah. And right. It is possible to check on a lot of this, and I've done so. Especially the the uh, soldiers who left in 1915, because on their medal cards it records the day they embarked, and none of the ones I checked embarked for France and Flanders on the day they signed the visitors' book. They'd already either gone or were in Folkestone on other business. I wonder whether you know how many people roughly disembarked at Folkestone during the war uh, based on what you've, what, on the research you've done. Based on the research I've done, I think just over 3 million embarked from Folkestone and just over 3 million 
disembarked at Folkestone. Right? That includes soldiers and others who made multiple journeys. The figure differs from other people's figures. Different people will give you a different amount because of the way the figures were calculated and the way some figures were first published and, and the location of Folkestone. Some people will put the figure a lot higher. They will put it at around 10 million. The first in, in Folkestone in the Great War by Carlisle, he actually quotes a figure which is from statistics of the British Empire during the war. And he puts down the total number of embarkations by the military and claims that they all went from Folkestone, which they didn't. Some people say it's the number of, of troops that came through Folkestone. That's a very difficult thing to quantify because troops came through Folkestone from Dover to London, from London to Dover, not only by boat from France or train from London, they, they crisscrossed, you know, there were troop movements all the time. But I think uh, as for disembarking at Folkestone, I think the, the figure is nearer, nearer 3 million around that area. The, the two totals, embarking and disembarking, I think are similar, but uh, there, there's always a caveat on these things. The troops who embarked from Folkestone did not necessarily return via Folkestone. Um, some of them didn't return. Some of them came back via Southampton or one of the other ports. Some via Dover. Some of the troops that embarked from Folkestone went directly to their home nation such as the Canadians, uh, the Americans, and the Australians. They, they never came back this way. But lots of troops did who didn't embark from here because it was one of five ports that took returning troops. Did anybody famous sign the visitor's book? Uh, there, there are a number of famous people who signed it. Um, in civilian life, too, as well as people who would have been famous at the time, BC holders and, and that. But we also know that a lot of famous people embarked from Folkestone. We know, for example, that on the 17th of November 1915, Winston Churchill embarked from Folkestone, along with Walter Tell, the black officer. Siegfried Sassoon embarked here the day before. Um, Lloyd George embarked from here. Haig... He embarked from here on one occasion. Um, Jack Pershing, Pershing, the American commander, embarked from Folkestone. Martha Harry did. Um, there's a, a few books about the nurses. They embarked from here. Uh, surprisingly, a large number of Americans did. There, there's one American that I'm going to uh, like to mention who embarked from Folkestone, and his name was Norman Hall. And he was an American and he decided that he was going to join the British Army and fight for Britain. So he joined the uh, Fusiliers, the North Dumberland Fusiliers, and, and he embarked from Frankston. He should be more famous than he is. Uh, he's the only person that I know of fought in three armies in the First World War. He embarked from Frankston in the British Army he left the British Army and joined the French Army, where he became a pilot. And he left the French Army when America entered the war to join the American Air Service. So he actually fought for three different armies 
in the First World War. And does the book give us any interesting stories um, that people have signed and left to sort of accounts of their time? On the whole, there's, there's very few. There's interesting little snippets. You know, there's like um, three soldiers have signed the book saying, uh, you know, they signed their names and then they put, we've done our bit, it's now your turn, which is kind of an interesting uh, snippet. There's, there's signatures from different nationalities. Uh, one of the, the surprises is there's a couple of Chinese signatures in the book. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>